For an archive of other sermons and course content, please visit fpcgulfport.org. There is heartache in this world. But here's the thing. Here's what's exciting about God is He doesn't leave you alone in the midst of it. There's never a promise that life is lollipop lane. It's not. But the promise consistently is this, that I am with you. Jesus was with them in the boat. Whether they recognized it, saw it, understood it or not, Jesus was with them. In today's study of Matthew 14, our Savior walked on water right near a boat that was carrying His disciples. But when the Apostle Peter tried to do the same thing, he began to sink. In this sermon, we'll focus on these three things. What Jesus was doing out on the water, why He allowed a storm to overtake His disciples, and why Peter had so much trouble when he walked out to join his Savior. The setting for today's text is fairly straightforward. We're in the Sea of Galilee. Christ's disciples are out in a boat somewhere in the middle. A furious storm has come down upon them. We, we live in the Gulf. We can relate to what it's like to have furious storms out on the water. Now, this storm was especially fierce. It was rocking the boat. It was causing them all manner of consternation. They were in danger of capsizing. They were in danger of drowning. They were in danger of dying as a result of being in the middle of the storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. That's the setting. It is an undesirable setting indeed. But here's the kicker. Here's the main takeaway from this text. Do you know why they were in that boat in the middle of the sea to begin with? We look at this text and we say, okay, they were in the boat and the storm came. Why were they there? Why were they in what looks to us to be the wrong place at the wrong time? Why were they squarely in the middle of the Sea of Galilee when this fierce storm came? Why were they there? They were there in the midst of the storm because that's exactly where Christ told them to go. Christ put them in the boat. Christ told them where to go. Christ, Christ, Christ gave them the instructions and the decree that put them in a situation that they would not have called down upon themselves. You miss that, you won't get a great deal of the rest of this text. Christ ordained the circumstances and the situation they were where God told them to go. They were obeying. They weren't being disobedient. When life's storm came upon them, when things got bad, it wasn't because they were being disobedient. It wasn't because they went east when they should have gone west. It wasn't because they were especially sinful here or did something wrong that angered Jesus. They were exactly where Jesus told them to go, doing exactly what Jesus told them to do when this horrific storm came upon them. We don't want to miss that. We don't want to forget it. However, here's the thing, and here's, here's why we can take such immense hope in this. That although this storm came upon them, although it was furious, although it threatened their life, although it was looking to overwhelm the boat, although they thought this might be the end, it was not. Furthermore, as they looked out, they discovered something that was of great encouragement to them, that they were not alone. This week, some in this room, some in our congregation are facing life storms. You are not alone when you do so. The hand of Christ is extended towards you. There's times, maybe it's this week, Maybe it'll be next week. Maybe it's out on the horizon a bit. Maybe it's just not one storm. Maybe it's a whole baker's dozen. Maybe there's all sorts of things that are out there in the future. 
to live long enough, it will happen. It has happened, it will happen again. There are scary times. There are circumstances you don't want. Sometimes they go by the name cancer or job loss or what have you. There are storms out there. We've talked about this recently. It bears repeating. There are things on the horizon that can, of their own strength and volition, overwhelm you. But, but you're not alone in the midst of this. In those times when it feels like we're in danger of slipping beneath the waves... The hand of Christ, as is in the case here in Matthew 14, throughout the whole of the book, the hand of Christ is extended to reach out to you, to lift us up. You know, it's a misnomer to think if you're doing God's will, you'll never face difficulty. The whole of Scripture tells us otherwise. Doing God's will can well put you in the midst of a storm. Doing what God has called you to do, saying what God has called you to say, can put you in the midst of the storm. God's will may take you into stormy circumstances. It may take you into fiery furnaces. It may put you in the lion's den. It may put you in places that left to your own volition you would not choose for yourself. But even as that is true, you don't face it alone. And that is going to be a main takeaway from our text. If you would, let's look now. Let's look at verses 22 through 24. Let's see what this text says and then work our way through the balance of the passage. Verse 22. Immediately... Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him. Immediately. Immediately Jesus told his disciples to get in the boat and go before him. What did we say earlier? Them being in the boat and where they went to was not an accident. It wasn't left a chance. In fact, it was the express decree, express command of Christ himself. From his own lips he told them where to go and where to be. He put them in the boat that would put them in the storm. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat, the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. All right. Today's passage begins. As today's passage begins, we see that Jesus is surrounded by multitudes of people. Multitudes of people are gathered around. Now, who were they? As you think through what's going on, the context of this, what's going on? Why are there multitudes around Jesus? Who were they? Why were they there? What was this all about? Well, in the preceding verses, if you were to look back in, in your Bibles, in the preceding verses of Matthew 14, we find this amazing story of the feeding of the 5,000. The amazing story by which Christ did one of the most eyewitness miracles of all time, he takes five loaves and two fish and feeds 5,000 plus some. He feeds a great multitude out there in this desolate place on a hillside near the Sea of Galilee. So verses 13 and 21, leading up to today's text, told us that these multitudes had come to Jesus. Some were there to listen and to learn. Some were there just to maybe be the beneficiary of miracles, healing and the likes. They got a free meal. So they gathered to Jesus to this end. And when he was done, after the meal had been completed, after the people had been nourished in body and in spirit, in verse 22 we see that Jesus, he sent them away. The people had a misunderstanding of who Jesus was and what he came to do. Other passages say that at this point and at other points, the, the people tried to take him by force to make him king. They thought of himself as somewhat different than what he really was. And in this case, he thought it was appropriate to disperse the crowd. But in verse 22, not only does he send the multitudes away to give himself some time to pray, 
It wasn't only the multitudes that he asked to depart, but he sent his own disciples away as well, and he put them in the boat. He sent his disciples away, he put them in the boat. Why? Because it was time to pray. You and I, one of the weakest links in our Christian walk, our Christian faith, our Christian witness, our Christian testimony, oftentimes is our prayer. For many of us, we, we pray at meals. Maybe we pray before bed. We pray in habit at a few select periods of time. Jesus saw this as an absolutely critical, important, necessary part of his life, his walk, and his ministry, and he always reserved great swaths of time to spend in prayer, to be with his Father. There's never been a man who I think is as busy as Jesus was during this three-plus years of public ministry. And there's never been a man whose work was that important. And yet, he set aside time to pray. He set aside a significant amount of time to pray. And that should be instructive for us who think we're too busy. In any case, he sends people away. In order that he might pray, he sends the multitudes away. He sends the disciples on a boat to go to the other side, and he would meet them later. Initially, they were probably headed towards Capernaum, which is where their kind of ministerial home base was. It was a number of miles across the water. So the disciples went. They did what God told them. They did what Jesus told them to do. They were where to go, what to do. They followed. And that led them into into a storm. Now, before we talk about that storm, before we look to the next verses to see what's going on, remember these guys. Remember, these were not, these were not slouches when it came to boats. They knew what they were doing. These were seafaring individuals. They were men of the water. These were mariners. They knew something about sailing. They knew something about rowing. They knew something about getting across waters. They knew what they were doing. This was not their first rodeo, and it was not going to be their first encounter with bad weather. But this particular storm... It was a whopper, to use the vernacular. It was a big one. The storm that came upon them was unlike storms that they had encountered before. It was significant, so significant, that as they went out to sea, they got stuck there, and they could not move. They couldn't move because the wind was contrary. It was a boisterous wind hemming them in, keeping them from making any head ground. And as they rode against it with all their might, they were growing increasingly tired as the night went on. Let's look at verse 25 and 26 to see about the storm. Verse 25. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. They said, it is a ghost. It is a ghost. And they cried out with fear. So picture this. You have Jesus himself. He has sent the multitudes away. He's put his disciples in a boat. They've headed out across the water. He's alone. He's praying. And he prays well into the night. Again, he valued it that much. Jesus did sleep. He did need sleep. And yet it was critical. It was important that he prayed. And so he prayed and prayed and prayed. Verse 25 says that then by the fourth watch of the night, this would have been somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It was a lot closer to sunrise than it was to sunset. And Jesus has been praying. And yet his mind and perhaps even his eyes are still looking, still considering his, his friends, his disciples in the boat. He knows what's going on. In the divine mind of Jesus, he knew exactly what was going on and the fears and concerns of, of those out on the water. Now, some of us have more experience out on the water than others of us. Some of us know a little bit more what to do. 
I myself would be in a great deal of trouble if I was out in a boat and expected to get in safely. A number of years back, this would have been in late high school, I had an opportunity to row in a canoe with a friend, and this was in Oregon, and we were going to go a few miles down this river. And it wasn't especially difficult water, and it was a pretty nice day. And yet, I think we planned too ambitious an itinerary for how far we'd get and how long it would, would take us. And after getting only a couple miles in, about halfway in, in terms of our trip, I was beat. I'd had my fill. Unfortunately, I'd bragged about how easy this was going to be, so I put myself in a position. It was hard to, hard to walk back. But I was beat. I'd had blisters the first half, the first portion of this trip. By the time we got near the end of the trip, my blisters had blisters. I had a whole host of issues. My arms felt like they were going to drop off. That was after a short, comparatively short, seafaring trip. With that said, when I think of this, these guys miles out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with a raging storm, they've been rowing all night. They were just about done. They were about the end of their strength. Out in the midst of turbulent waters that God in his own divine wisdom had placed them. But just then, just as their strength was probably at low ebb and soon to be no ebb, just as things were about done, the men looked out on the water and they saw another man, which was about the last thing they expected to see. They saw another man and he was approaching them on the water, walking towards the boat. Now, I don't know. I don't, that's not an ordinary event. People just walking out upon the water. And so the men had a reaction that I think is an appropriate reaction. They freaked out. They cried out. They said, it is a ghost. See, in the first century context, there was a rampant belief amongst Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, and the like. There's a rampant belief in what you might call phantasms and the like, especially those that came out at dark, and especially those who showed up when people were at the door of death. They look out, and they're already contemplating their mortality by virtue of the storm. And then they see what to their eyes at first appears to be a specter of sorts. And they cry out, they scream out. The Greek word that's used is especially strong in terms of the wailing that they did. However, however, this was not a phantasm. This was not a ghost. So who was it? Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Let's look at verse 27, 28. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. They're freaking out. They're of no cheer. And he says, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. The operative, most important word in that sentence is the shortest word, the word I. If it had been anyone else out on the waves, it wouldn't have had near the encouragement as this statement that it is I. It is I. It is I, Jesus. It is I. The rabbi, the captain of, of your fate and your hope and your salvation, it is I. If it had been anyone else, Bob or Fred or Stu or Fran or what have you, wouldn't have the same impact. It is I, he says. Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you out on the water. You know, today's text in Matthew 14 this isn't the first time that in the gospel records that the disciples had faced a storm, a real storm. This wasn't the first time that this had happened. Some of you might remember the story in Matthew 8 
A storm comes upon a boat that the disciples are in. Only in this particular case, Jesus is also in the boat and he's asleep in the boat. You remember that narrative of Matthew 8? Let me read a few verses. It says that when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he, he was asleep. The disciples came to him and awoke him and said, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? It's interesting that that statement gets repeated in Matthew 14. Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. So the men marveled and they said, who can this be that even the winds and the waves obey him? See, on that occasion, which really wasn't that long in their collective past, on that occasion, another storm, it's called a tempest here, which sounds pretty severe. A tempest came upon the boat, the waters is coming over the front of the boat, the bow of the boat, and then, just as now, just as in Matthew 14, in both cases, the disciples freaked out. They said, this is the end, we're doomed. And again, these were guys who knew something about storms. They knew the difference between a storm they could survive and one they couldn't. And they came to the conclusion, and both Matthew 8 and Matthew 14, that the storm they were facing, they could not survive. They could not make. So they freaked out. They said, Lord, save us. We are perishing. They acknowledge the fact they're going to die unless he does something here. And on that occasion, on that occasion, Jesus did. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. They stop. The men are saved. Now, on that occasion, something was different, though. Something was different that was important. On that occasion, when they faced a storm that threatened to take them out, on that occasion, Jesus was in the boat. In Matthew 8, Jesus was in the boat. And that gave them a huge amount of confidence. They probably figured God would let them go, but his own son was going to make it. So he was in the boat, and that gave them some confidence. But in Matthew 14, in today's text, in today's text, Jesus is not in the boat. But that didn't mean he was not on the job. That didn't mean his hand wasn't on the wheel. Sometimes we think that God is a satellite in orbit of us, that he's way afar looking at us through a telescope, and only here and now does he even pay attention to us, let alone help us. Even when it doesn't look like he's in the boat with you, he is. The boat and his disciples were extraordinarily precious to Jesus. Even up on the hill, his eye never left them. You have to imagine, he always knew exactly where they were. He knew their circumstances. He knew their situation. And he knew his intention, his intention to save them. His eye never left them. His eye has never left you. Sometimes you will be tempted to think that it has. Perhaps you've strayed out of his will and you think that his eye and his hand and his heart and his love aren't with you. That's not the way this works. That's not the way it is. Christ's eye is always on his people. Every mile, every oar stroke, every paddle, everything that they did on the water, every moment of them, these disciples, like you and I, were under his careful watch, his loving watch. And in verse 27, we see that he's not only watching as if that all that God does. It's not only that he was watching, but in their moment of greatest danger, he was with them. It is I whatever the storm is this week in your life or mine, 
He's not a million miles away. But he's present even at our side when we don't recognize him. These men didn't recognize him. They thought he was a ghost. It brings to mind the picture of, of Mary Magdalene. You're outside the tomb, the empty tomb. Remember, she's weeping, she's crying. This is the worst day of her life. A man appears at her side. She mistakes him to be the gardener. He says, Mary, Mary it is I. Mary, Mary. And when he says that, she recognizes who this one is. Jesus is at your side even when you don't see him, even when you're not looking for him. Jesus is at our side. His eye never loses sight of his own. Is with us even when we don't understand it to be true. Whatever the case, in verse 26, the disciples apparently didn't recognize him when they saw him. Even when he had bounded across the waves, so to speak, or at least had speedily come to the rescue. In order to clarify things, in order to clarify what's going on, in order to give them a moment of cheer and a season of despair, he says, it is I. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, in Matthew's description of these events, Matthew records something for us, for our benefit, that the other Gospels do not mention. Specifically, Matthew records... Peter's reaction, Peter's reaction to Christ's words. When Peter says this, he says, Lord, Lord, if it is you, if it is you, call to me to come out to you. Lord God, if it really is you, call me to come to your side. Now, we don't know all of Peter's motivations here. A lot of folks try to guess or deduce what's Peter thinking. We don't know this. But it's reasonable, it's reasonable to conclude one thing at least. It's reasonable to conclude that in his moment of greatest need, when the boat's about to go down, the only place he wanted to be in that moment, even if it involved crossing the waves to get there, the only place he wanted to be was at the side of Jesus Christ. In your storm, in my storm, when we're in a boat that's tipping and rocking, looks like it's going to go down, sometimes our hope is only in the boat. Sometimes our hope is in our circumstances, our ability to control the wheel. Peter abandoned the boat. He says, the boat is not sufficient to save me. This one is. He was willing to let loose of the boat in order to go to Jesus. Some of us need to let go of the boat, so to speak. Some of us need to fix our eyes on the one who is able to save us and stop looking at all the breadcrumbs he leaves for us that are meant perhaps to feed us but are not sufficient to save us. Peter knew that the boat was not sufficient to save him. He knew that holding on to Jesus was his only option. And so that's where he attempted to go. Let's look at Christ's response in verses 29 and 30. So Jesus said, come. Peter asked, command me to come and I will come. Jesus says, come. Now when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on water to Jesus. If we were just to stop there, sometimes we speed too quickly past. We go to the next verse. If we were just to stop there, we would look at that and see the amazing miracle that that is. This man did something that no one else has done in the history of man other than Jesus. This man, in this moment in time, long time ago, far, far away, this man walked on water. Now, was it Two steps? Was it ten steps? That we don't know. We don't know how far he walked, but we know he walked on water. In the face of his doubts, in the face of physics and buoyancy and gravity and all that, empowered through his faith, by the source of his faith, he was enabled to do something he otherwise couldn't, and that was to walk on water. There is so much that you could do, or that God could do through you, 
today and in the future and in time yet to come if you would trust in him. In this moment, Peter's eyes are locked on Jesus. He's given the faith to do something that to us seems unimaginable. What unimaginable things could be in your future if you were to trust in this way and lock your eyes upon Jesus? Well, whatever the case, no one else has done this. And again, we don't know if it was two steps, ten steps, but we know that Peter walked on water towards Jesus. But then in verse 30, it says that he made a mistake at this point. Verse 30 says that he made a big mistake. Specifically, verse 30 says this, or suggests this. It says, he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to focus on the storm. Verse 30 says that while he may have been looking at Jesus and talking to Jesus and conversing with Jesus moments before, now his attention is different. Now it says he's looking to the storm. Specifically, verse 30 says this. When he saw, he's looking around now, when he saw that the wind was boisterous, when he got distracted by his circumstances and the storm itself, when the storm became his focus, what happened? Verse 30 says he was afraid and he began to sink. When he lost sight of his king, when he lost sight of Jesus Christ, when he focused on the storm, he began, he began to stink. You know, in this life, we've said it before, there's all sorts of storms. Whatever you're facing this week may be different than what you're facing next week. For those of us with some gray hair, you've probably seen a number of storms. There may yet still be some on the near or long-term horizon. Whatever the case is, like Peter... One takeaway from this text is this, that we're supposed to focus on God in the middle of the storm. If you're focusing always on the storm, if you're focusing always on the storm and how it's threatening to overtake you, if you're focused on your despair over your circumstances, maybe it's a diagnosis, something you don't like has entered your life, there's a relationship that you're having trouble with, when you're focused unduly, overly on the storm and all the manifestations of that storm in your life, you will be inclined towards despair and depression. If you are always focused on the storm and never the one who transcends the storm, never the one who decreed the storm, if you're focused on the storm itself, you can't help but be driven into doubt and depression or fear. And you can't help but sink. Some of us need to stop focusing on the storm. There's something I mentioned in the early service. bears repeating. When I was in high school... Went through driver's ed. I think I had to go through it twice or something like that. Went through driver's ed. The one, one takeaway that I remember to this day, I'm sure the instructor said a lot of things, but the one thing I remember with clarity is he reminded me as I was steering. He says, look, whatever you focus on with your eyes, that's going to be the trajectory the car goes in. He says, if you're looking to the left, if you're looking to the right, if you're looking to the sign, if you're looking to the accident... If you're looking at anything to the side of the road or what have you, guess what? Subconsciously, you end up steering slightly towards whatever you're looking at. He says your eyes are locked in the center of the road, generally speaking. If you're looking ahead, if you're focused on the right trajectory where you're going to go, you're going to end up steering that direction. Where your eyes are focused, that tells a lot about your trajectory. What we focus on matters. So we should ask ourselves what we're focusing on. Well, Scripture says, keep your eyes upon Jesus. Sounds intuitive, right? I and mean, that sounds like a good biblical idea. But it's true. Even one of our most famous hymns says, to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wondrous face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 
Peter took his eyes off the face of Christ. When Peter focused on the storm, he began to sink. Peter's fears at that moment were greater than his faith. And in desperation, he does the one thing that all of us, I trust and hope, have done at some point, And that is to cry out, Lord, save me. To realize that left to his own devices, he didn't have the strength or even the faith. He would otherwise drown. So he calls out to he who is the source of all grace and all faith, Jesus Christ. He says, Lord, save me. Now guess what happened next? Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus extends his hand that moment. He extends his hand that moment. Not until Peter was worthy, not until Peter had repented of every last thing, not until Peter was right with God, not until Peter had this great track record, not until Peter mustered up enough faith on his own. The moment he cried out, immediately the hand went out. Let's look at our verses 31 and 33, our last verses, and we'll see that. Verse 31, And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and he caught him. And he said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and they worshipped him. And they said, Truly, truly, you are the Son of God. You know, one of the greatest misnomers about the Christian walk is that if you're a Christian, you will avoid hardship and heartache. It isn't so. But it's a misnomer we buy in. That's why there's such things as the prosperity gospel. That's why there's health and wealth theology. Because some people desperately want to believe that if they are a Christian, if they put their name in the back of the Bible, if they walk the sawdust trail, if they do these things, that life will go generally well for them. They'll have health, wealth, prosperity, and the like. Is that the way it works? You doubt that? Ask Peter. Ask the apostles. Ask John the Baptist in prison who had died just prior at the very start of chapter 14. Look, there is a great and glorious future. But this, this is a fallen world. This is a fallen world and we are beset by fallen ills. And at times they will back us into a corner. At times they will threaten to overcome us, to overdo us, to overwhelm us. Living in a fallen world means we do suffer fallen ills, and you and I don't have the collective strength combined to fight them off, let alone the strength as an individual. We don't, and we have to be realistic about this. There is heartache in this world. The apostles were not spared from it. We won't be either, but here's the thing. Here's what's exciting about the book. Here's what's exciting about God, is He doesn't leave you alone in the midst of it. There's never a promise that life is lollipop lane. It's not. But the promise consistently is this, that I am with you. Yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you shall fear no evil. Why? Because I am with you. Jesus was with them in the boat. Whether they recognized it, saw it, understood it or not, Jesus was with them. And the moment they cried out, the moment Peter cries out, the hand is extended to them. Now remember, let me look to wrap up this morning. Remember this. The storm itself was not an accident. Sometimes we think that we just drift into hardship by virtue of happenstance, coincidence, sinfulness and the like. And there is some truth to the fact that sometimes our sins will lead us into hardship. And yet, we can misunderstand that just like Hurricane Zeta that none of us asked for, none of us wanted, sometimes things happen. But every last one of them, God has ordained. Why would he do that? 
Well, that's longer than we have time to, to cover in, in the remaining moments here, but I'll offer for at least one thought. Your faith, my faith, our faith grows so much more in adversity than it does in tranquility. Our faith grows in adversity. Matthew 14, the storm gave Peter and the others an opportunity to have their faith tested, refined, improved. And that faith was demonstrated to a degree the moment Peter's feet hit the water. Was it sufficient enough to get him from all the way to Jesus? Apparently not. And yet his faith was being tested and tried. And that's a good thing because that's how our faith grows. That's how our faith grows. And in the moment, the moment, of course, that, that Peter began to sink, Christ's hand was there. The trials and tests that you face, that I face, that we collectively face, like the hurricane of a couple weeks ago, yes, these will happen. But as we face them, we don't face them alone. And God does and will and can use them for our benefit and His glory. And once we have the benefit of retrospect, when we're on the other side of the veil, we'll see exactly how, even if that's difficult now. There will come a time when you will understand why every storm came into your life. And you will also see, if you're a Christian, if you have the heart of Christ within you, you will see how God used that to refine and grow your faith in ways that utopia never would, at least in the here and now, in ways that tranquility could not. This week, you may be in the midst of a storm right now. Again, that storm sometimes has names like cancer or job loss. Marital concerns, vocational concerns, economic concerns. Maybe some or all of the above could hit us. The perfect storm, you might call that. Each one of us may face a storm now or in the time yet to come. But whatever the case, the storm is not an accident and God is with you in the midst of it. The storm is not an accident God is with you in the midst of it. I'll use one last word picture as we close here. Hardships, difficulty, troubles... These are the collective garden in which your faith and mine is cultivated and grows. The process isn't easy, but it will accomplish something good in the time yet to come, even if you can't see that here and now. God may be putting you right now in circumstances that are trying your faith, but also growing your faith. And if He loves you, He'll do that. You won't ask for these situations on your own, but if He loves you, He will do that. And when He does it, the moment that we turn to Him in the midst of these trials, which is the whole purpose of why the trials came in to begin with, but the moment we turn to Him and say, Lord, save me, we find that He does. We find that His hand is there. All our circumstances might not change per se. There still may be winds blowing around us, and yet His hand is with us. Some of us can attest to that because we know what that's like. We know what it's like to face life's storms and yet at the same time to feel the embrace of our God, to feel the embrace of our Maker. This week, your challenge, this week, your challenge, my challenge, as the storms come, as they may be hit in recurrence, as the storms come, our challenge is not to focus so much on the storm as we may have done in times past, but to focus more on Him. You've spent your whole life focused on the storm. I've done enough counseling to know this is true. You and I have spent our whole lives unduly focused on the storm. Today's text is a reminder and an invitation to focus increasingly on Him. Let's pray. In today's study, we've gone verse by verse through Scripture 
If this sort of expositional preaching is what you're looking for, then please subscribe to this podcast and check back tomorrow for another verse-by-verse study of God's Word. Join Dr. Toby Holt and Dr. Dominic Aquila for a tour of Israel in February of 2024. For more information, visit fpcgulfport.org.